And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Well, according to a survey published by U.S. News and World Report, two-thirds of American adults believe that Jesus will someday uh, return to earth. However, most who believe uh, in Christ's return place it well beyond their lifetime. In fact, about 33% say that it's going to happen more than a few hundred years from now. Okay, so sometime in the rather distant future. Now, among us, those seated here, I would guess that belief in Christ's return is near 100%. Yet I wonder how much that awareness of His return affected your life this past week? Uh, Did it figure in how you spent your time? Did it fill you with hope as you faced a trial or a crisis? Did it enable you to resist temptation as you thought about what it would be like to stand before Him on that day? Did it determine how you spent your money as a steward who one day will give an account? Or did you even think at all about Christ's soon coming as you went about your week last week. If the second coming of Jesus is not a major factor in your normal Christian life, then you are missing one of the most powerful biblical motivations for godly living that there is. Well, Jesus is continuing this discourse here to His disciples on future things, and here's the point that He makes. Since Christ is certainly returning... We need to be alert, we need to be ready, not dull and surprised by His coming. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we come before You just uh, to humbly bow our knees before You to say that, yes, You are God and we are not, to recognize the goodness of the gift of Your Son, Jesus Christ, and the fact that He, as He says, He is coming again one day. And what difference does that make for us in the here and now? So God, I pray that You would just speak life into my words, into Your words this morning to draw us closer to You, that when we leave here, we can be more like Your Son, Jesus It's in His precious name we pray. Amen. Well, the first part of the discourse, which was verses 5 through 24, which we looked at last week, it focuses on the impending judgment that's coming on Jerusalem because she rejected her Messiah. But the terrible events that happened in A.D. 70, they were just a portent, a, a foretaste of the events that will lead up to the second coming of Christ and the final judgment. Now, as I said last week, many of the events that Christ predicted have multiple fulfillments culminating in that grand finale uh, at His return. And that is normal for uh, prophecy that we see throughout Scripture, that there are multiple, there's usually a short-term and then there's a long-term aspect to it as well. At the end of 24, our last verse last week, Jesus refers to Jerusalem being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, the times of the Gentiles refers to the current church age when God's grace is not dispensed through Israel, but through the church, which of course is made up both of Jews and Gentiles. Now, in our text this week, Jesus jumps ahead to the end of that epic that culminates in His return in power and great glory to establish God's kingdom on earth. Now, this next part, 
you just got to bear with me. I got to use some words that I have trouble pronouncing. Okay? There are three major views regarding future things. Now, theologically, we call um, um, the future things eschatology. It's the study of the end times. All right. There's three major views among evangelical Christians. I hold to premillennialism. You ever heard of that? Some of you had, you're nodding, yeah. Premillennialism, see, it's hard to say. Premillennialism, which simply means that Jesus will return and establish the kingdom of God on earth, maybe for a thousand years, that's what Revelation 20 tells us, um, and it will be a fulfillment of God's promises to Israel in the Old Testament. Jesus, in Luke and the other Gospels, he's already referred to a present sense of the kingdom. In other words, the kingdom is to some degree already present among us. But here he states, when these signs that we're going to be going over, when they come, you will know that the kingdom of God is near. Now that implies that it will come in his fullness after he returns. All right? That, so that's premillennialism, just, just in a little nutshell. Amillennialists, I know we have one in here. Do not believe in a little, and this is fine, do not believe in a literal 1,000 year of reign, reign of Christ on earth. Rather, they think that he will return, just like the premillennialists, he'll judge the earth and usher in the eternal state. They believe that the kingdom of God consists of Christ's present reign from heaven over his people. So the millennium for them is spiritual, it's not literal, and it's not physical. One of the main reasons that I hold to premillennialism rather than amillennialism is that I don't believe Jesus' present reign over his people, okay? That's how I would describe the kingdom of God now. I don't think that even comes close to fulfilling just the glorious promises that were made to Israel in the Old Testament. Well, the other main view is postmillennialism. And it teaches that the church will usher in God's kingdom through the worldwide spread of the gospel, culminating in Christ's return. So they view the millennium as a glorious time of worldwide revival just prior to Christ's return. They don't necessarily see it as a thousand literal years. I think this is the least likely view of the three simply because many scriptures, including our passage today, they indicate that things are going to get worse before Jesus comes, not get better. Well, okay, so you got those three, premillennialists, amillennialists, postmillennialists, yeah. Among premillennialists, among that first group, okay, there are a number of views about if and when there is a rapture of the church separate from the second coming, Okay, now all forms of Christianity, you know, orthodox forms of Christianity, believe in the second coming of Christ. Not all believe in the rapture. Believe it or not, this doctrine of, we'll call it the doctrine of the rapture, do you know exactly when it was, Tyler? It was the early 1800s, 1815, 1820, somebody came up with this. So relatively speaking, this is only a 200-year-old doctrine about the rapture. The church never thought that before. Okay, but among premillennialists, it varies concerning the rapture as to when it will occur. Uh, occur. Most premillennial, premillennial dispensationalists, okay, 
they hold to a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. All right, if you've been in Baptist life long, you have heard this taught. It's what I was taught. All right, we're going along in the church age. Whoa, we're raptured. The church is taken out. Then we have seven years of tribulation, right? Three and a half, they're called tribulation. The last three and a half is called the great tribulation. And then that culminates with Christ coming again, his second return. Now, that's what I've been taught basically my whole life. But, but I got to confess, the longer that I study the Bible, the more I, I, I am less certain, let's just say, about that view. It really depends on drawing a sharp distinction between God's programs for Israel and for the church and on interpreting prophetic passages literally. And that's one of the, that's one of the hard things about prophecy. It doesn't say, oh, by the way, this is literal and this is figurative. <laughs> you got to figure that out on your own. And depending on how you look at it, it can mean very different things. Now, some dispensationalists hold to a mid-tribulation rapture. So we're going along in the church age, and all of a sudden, these end-time things starts, starts happening, just like Revelation talks about and what Jesus talks about. And about three and a half years through it, this is before the great tribulation, we are raptured out. The church is raptured out. And then the world goes through the great tribulation. Then Jesus comes again. Those are called mid-tribbers. That's what we call them because it's mid-tribulation. Now, there are some non-dispensational premillennialists. They don't see a distinction, a sharp distinction between Israel and the church. They hold that God's people will go through the entire tribulation, all right, along with the rest of the world. And then Jesus will come. You may have noticed our text doesn't deal <laughs> with, the, you know, with whether or not there is a separate rapture of the church. It focuses on the second coming of Christ, which all Orthodox Christians assent to. They believe. If you believe that the church is going to be raptured sometime before the second coming, then this text that we're looking at this morning may not directly affect you, at least in your theology. But if you believe that there is only one second coming of Jesus for his people, then it is quite applicable. Now, we're going to look at four points this morning. And number one, the fact of his coming is more certain than heaven and earth. Either Jesus is returning visibly and bodily with power and great glory, or he is a liar. It's that simple. Uh, and he can't be trusted at all. Those are the only two options. The language of verse 27 is taken from Daniel 7, 13 through 14. And that's where Daniel saw in his vision one like a son of man. Now, this person came up to the ancient of days, that's God, where this, the one like the son of the man was given eternal dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. So such eternal dominion could belong to none other than the Lord God. In the Old Testament, it's the Lord, it's God who comes on the clouds. So Jesus' language in verse 27 is the language of deity. The second coming of Jesus Christ in a cloud with power and great glory that's really in stark contrast to his first coming. Now, it's true there were some manifestations of power and glory in that first coming. You'll remember that the, the angel announced the miraculous conception to Mary. 
Uh, the heavenly chorus sang and announced his birth to the shepherds. Uh, the miraculous star guided the wise men to the house where, where Jesus was. You remember Anna and Simeon in the, in the temple? Right? They bring Jesus to dedicate him and they prophesy over this child. But there were also many commonplace events that really masked his divine glory. He was born to a common working class couple, not to royalty. They were excluded from the inn, so Mary had Jesus in a stable. Common shepherds, not scribes, scholars, or kings, witnessed his birthplace. And contrary to the pictures on most Christmas cards, Jesus did not have a halo around him when he was born. He actually grew up in relative obscurity, working as a carpenter. There just wasn't much divine power and glory manifested in his first coming. Now, once he'd been here about 30 years and his ministry took off, yeah, we got some witness to some divine power and glory, right? But in his coming, it wasn't so. But when he comes again, his second coming, every eye will see him. The whole world. Matthew 24, 31, Jesus states that he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet to gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Revelation 19, 11 through 16 describes it this way, sees Jesus coming in riding on a white horse of war, his eyes of flaming fire, his robe dipped in blood, and a sword coming out of his mouth with which he will smite the nations. Goes on and says, he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the wine press of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. What is that name? King of kings and Lord of lords. His exalted second coming, it's going to be a total contrast from his lowly first coming. And in case we missed it, Jesus underscores the certainty of his second coming by adding, by the way, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. More than you can trust the ground beneath your feet or the fact that the stars and moon will be in the sky tonight or that the sun will rise tomorrow, you can trust the words of Jesus Christ. Now, only God in human flesh <laughs> could make such a claim. Jesus' second coming is not a matter of prophetic speculation. It's a certain fact. If it's not, then you really can't trust Jesus on anything else. Well, number two, the signs of his coming consists of cataclysmic global threats and changes. Now, in the parallels of uh, uh, Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Jesus, he mentions several other signs that immediately precede his coming. The abomination of desolation prophesied by Daniel will be set up in the holy place in the temple. False Christs and false prophets will arise and will deceive many. The hearts of many, and I believe he's talking about believers here, will grow cold. But even so, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And they say that there will be signs in the heavens. Well, Luke only focuses on the signs in the heavens and on earth. 
Now, these words about cataclysmic changes in the heavens, they reflect a number of Old Testament passages that connect those type events with what the Old Testament calls the coming judgment day of the Lord. It's, it's, it's a dark day for those who don't know God. Matthew 24, 29, reflecting Isaiah 13, 10, states that the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky. The, the sea and its waves will roar. Now, some take these words symbolically, but I don't see any reason to not take them literally. They may, re may refer to changes which God will impose on His creation simply to show that He is Lord of the universe. We like to depend on our laws of physics, don't we? The reason you sat down in that chair this morning, uh, it has something to do with faith, but it had faith, it has something to do with physics too. You've done it before. You assume that the laws of physics are going to work and you're going to sit down and that, that thing's just not going to collapse under you. We depend daily, heavenly, heavily, on the laws of physics. When this end time stuff takes place, it's going to be a new, it's going to be different. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Well, in fact, uh, these cosmic signs, they're going to be so great that the world's population, Jesus says, will cower in fear to the point of passing out. They're going to faint. They're so perplexed, they're so anxious about these signs in the skies and what's going on in the world. The Greek word translated per perplexity normally means or refers to being chained, like you're chained up. It means that men will be gripped or bound by anxiety. But believers will stand apart from the unbelieving world at this point. Rather than uh, being in distress, believers are going to be saying, all right, Jesus is coming. Our redemption is drawing near. Whether we go through the great tribulation or not, there is an application here for God's people. Because we trust in the, our, our sovereign Redeemer, the, the creator of the universe, we don't have to live in fear and anxiety even in the face of global catastrophe. Even if wars or plagues or natural catastrophes engulf us and take our lives, we can lift up our heads because our redemption draws near. As believers, I hope you understand that death only brings to completion the salvation which Jesus purchased on the cross. So we're to be people of hope and joy even when the world is engulfed in anxiety and fear. And we'll take a little sidebar here. I, here, here. I did it this morning. Uh, you know, this, this, this pandemic, right? I remember about three or four weeks after we started meeting again, I think we started in late May, uh, about three or four weeks, Miss Joanne High and James, they, they would sit up right up here, and I talked to them, you know, and it's good to see them back. It's good to see anybody back. And uh, as I was walking off, she goes, Preacher, when are we getting back to normal? And so in a reaction that was kind of pushing to the other extreme, I said, well, Miss Joanne, we may never go back to normal. Now, I did that to push back. But here we are 15 months later, and we're still dealing with this thing. And it's, you know it's getting worse, right? The numbers are very quickly rising. Well, my son, my oldest son, Austin, he struggles a little bit with anxiety. 
And he had COVID last October, and for 11 or 12 days, he didn't get out of his room. He was in bed. He thought he was going to die. He, he, bad. So he is scared to death of COVID because he thought he was going to die when he had, and he says, I'd never want that. I'd never wish that on anybody. And he says, I certainly don't want to go in. So Friday, this last Friday, he called. I prayed with him. He says, I think I need to come home. I said, well, come on home. So he came home. That afternoon, I took him fishing. And we're, at, we're out in the creek trying to catch a redfish. And we hadn't been there 15 minutes. And I, oh, I got to fill you on this. His younger brother, our middle son, Caleb, last week tested positive for COVID. But, but Caleb's in Tampa. And he's in Sarasota. They don't see each other. So, you know, it's like, well, Caleb, I'm praying for you. Da, da, da. Jonathan calls. We've been out there 15 minutes. And Austin gets a call from Jonathan, our youngest son, his younger brother, who he lives with in Sarasota. Jonathan has tested positive for COVID. Fishing trip over, we packed up and we came on in. Now, over the last two days, Austin and I have had some deep, deep conversations. Now, Austin loves the Lord. He's serving him. He runs the sound at the church that he goes to and stuff. But he, he thinks very deeply, and he has asked me some questions that I cannot answer. And I don't believe that the Bible gives us specific answers. And I'm like, son, that's above my pay grade. You can, you can ask God someday when we get to heaven. But his, his deal is about anxiety. And there's coming a time, Jesus says, when these world signs are going to happen and the whole world is going to be kept in check in this anxiety. Well... We went an awful lot of places in Scripture to look up certain things. Did you know that what's, what's, what's a fear that is common to man? All men. Huh? Bingo. Two or three people said death at the same time. I want to read for you. This is Hebrews chapter 2 beginning in verse 14. So since therefore the children, that's us, humanity, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, meaning Jesus became human, that through death, the death of Jesus, through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. All right, so through Jesus' death, he deals with death. And he dethrones, as it was, as it were, Satan, who has the power of death, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's pretty astounding. You, you, whoever said death, whoever several of y'all said at the same time, you're right. That is something that all men fear is death. R.C. Sproul is very famous for saying, I'm not afraid of death. Jesus conquered that on the cross. He says, I am kind of afraid of dying. I've never walked through that door before. Well, R.C., four years ago, went on to be with the Lord. I wish he could come and tell us now, right? Well, if you keep reading in this passage, I think it's dealing about death, all right, it's all, it's, scholars tell us it's one really one paragraph. He says, therefore, he, oh, no, no, verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, 
but he helps the offspring of Abraham. If you're a believer, you're an offspring of Abraham. So he helps us. How does he help us? Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now listen to verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, when, when did Jesus suffer the most when he was tempted? I think it's the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, he literally play, prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He sweat drops of blood. That is extreme. Scientists tell us that that's a real thing. And that in extreme anxiety, you will literally sweat, your, your capillaries will bust and you will sweat drops of blood. What was he fearing at this point? I believe that was his humanity. Remember, he was fully human, fully God. I think that's his humanity crying out, Lord, I don't want to die. I don't know what's there. He had never died before, right? Here's verse 18. Here's what it says. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And I don't think that this is just everyday temptation. I think it's temptation in the face of death. When we might be prone to deny God, to try something else, to not rely on Him. I believe this is saying that in that time of death, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes near to us. And when we die, it's a glorious thing from our perspective. Uh, Luke 15, he talks about uh, Lazarus, right? When he died, what happened to him? The angels took him to Abraham's bosom. I'm just saying, death for the believer, yeah. God has taken care of that on the cross. Dying, I think he will be there for us as well. Well, quickly, number three. Uh, the danger before his coming is to be weighed down with current worries. Uh, Jesus warns his, his hearers, including the disciples, be on guard that your hearts not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that the day that he's talking about come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who dwell on the face of the earth. Dissipation simply refers to the dizziness, the carousing that's associated with drunkenness. And you'd think that the Lord wouldn't have to warn his people about drunkenness. But when you realize that the godly Noah got drunk, it tells you, hey, you, 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 know, you need to take account of that as well. Christ himself is to be the source of our peace in this troubled world. Not alcohol, not drugs, not anything else. Uh, Jesus not only mentions the dangers of dissipation and drunkenness, but also the danger of being weighed down with the worries of the world. And this is what I'm trying to get across to Austin here. Worry is actually a sin. Why? Because it's opposed to faith in the living God. It's a sign of distrust. Now, the absence of worry doesn't mean just shrugging our shoulders and, and doing nothing about our problems. There is a proper sense uh, of concern that should move us to just responsible action. But when we get stressed out, and Austin has been doing this a lot lately, when he gets stressed, he goes to his knees. He just goes right to his knees. 
Yesterday we were praying and we had quite a lengthy, we prayed multiple times, but during this one time he prayed multiple, multiple I mean, he prayed for a long time, and I prayed and closed us out. And when I finished praying, he grabbed me. We were holding hands. He squeezed harder, and he just started praying again. And then when he finished that time, he just started bawling, just started crying and crying and crying. And here I am holding my 31-year-old son in my arm as he just bawls before God. And he says, I don't know why that happens, Daddy. I said, it happens to me. Mine is typically associated with music and lyrics about the cross. I don't know what it is, but there's just sometimes I will hear a lyric, a particular lyric about a cross, and it's like it just slays me on the spot, and I sit there and I bawl. His, he says, well, I think I know what mine is. It's just thinking about grace. He says, I don't deserve anything. He says, I'm a scoundrel. He says, I know it's all grace, grace of God. And why does he do, why does he do that? So, I immediately took him. Y'all all know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourself. This is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man boast. Right? Does anybody know the verse before that? I'm going to go back to verse 6. It says, um, by grace you've been saved. And he's talking about God. Raised us up with him, with God. Seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So why do believers go to heaven? Why are we in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus? Verse 7. So that, here's the reason why. In the coming ages, the actual Greek word is eons. So we're talking about eternity here. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What is afflicting in a good way, Austin, right now, the grace of God overwhelming him, it's going to overwhelm us for all eternity. We will never come to a sure grip of it. We will continuously be exposed to the increase and the understanding of just what Christ has done for us, which we deserved none of it, none of it. Well, when we get stressed out, we need to take time to get alone with God. We need to claim the promises of His Word. We need to pour out our troubles to Him in prayer. And then He may uh, direct us to a particular course of action. Well, I just want to talk about this last one just for a second. Uh, point four, readiness for His coming is to keep on the alert through prayer and obedience. Now, as I stand, understand Jesus' words here, all of these final events take place rather quickly. Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That kind of says that it's going to be within a generation. Now, that verse has caused much controversy. We don't have time. I did in the first service. I've got six versions of why People think, you know, what this supposedly means. This generation, what is Jesus referring to? I'm going to go to what I believe it is. I'll skip the other ones. If you want to know afterwards, yeah, we'll talk about it. I think the best solution is to say that this generation refers to the generation that is living when all of these cataclysmic events begin. Jesus then is saying that the generation that sees the beginning of the end will also see the end itself. You see what I'm saying? When these signs in the sky and in the world, when they start to happen, Jesus is coming before that generation dies. 
It's not going to be drug out over multiple generations. Well, as I said, there's just a ton of controversy over what this generation means. We can't be dogmatic. I just told you what I believe. Okay, you can take that with a grain of salt. Do your own, do your own study and see, see, see what you come up with. But to return to the point, the reference to this generation not passing away until all these things have happened and the warning that the final, uh, final events will come upon us like a trap, all right, that underscores the, the element of surprise or quickness. Jesus tells us, keep on the alert at all times, praying in order that you may have strength to escape all the things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So the way to be ready so that the day doesn't surprise us like a trap is to be in daily prayer for strength to endure persecution, to endure these world-shaking events. It may not be in our generation when these things happen. And to be obedient so that we can actually stand before the Lord when He does return. Uh, in July of 1959, that's the month I was born, uh, Queen Elizabeth was scheduled to visit uh, Chicago. And uh, elaborate preparation, preparations were made for her visit. The waterfront was ready for docking her ship. The litter baskets were all painted. The streets were cleaned. A red carpet was ready to be rolled out. Didn't know what hotel she was going to be staying in, so they contacted the best hotels in Chicago to, to warn them. And, uh, but when they contacted the Drake the manager said, we are making no plans for the queen. Our rooms are always ready for royalty. How about you? That's how our lives should be in light of Christ's return. We shouldn't have to make any special or unusual preparations. We should live each day alert and ready, dependent on him in prayer and obedient to his word. When the world is gripped with fear because of these frightening cataclysmic events, we should look up, filled with hope, because our redemption draws near. Let's pray. Father, again, we're just uh, grateful for the, the truth of your word, the trustworthiness of your word. Uh, we understand that Jesus is coming back. Scripture's clear. No, no man knows when that day is, but we are to be ready. So God, I pray that you would attune our hearts to that effect, that we would live lives that say, yes, I'm ready for Jesus to come back. If he wants to come back today, let's go. God, uh, give us lives that would reflect that belief. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, very quickly, you may be sitting out there this morning and you don't know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. You understand that's what sets, Christ, sets Christianity apart from all other religion. Matter of fact, next week we're going to be talking about evil religion. Okay? Uh, all religion is basically spelled D-O. Do. And it's based on what you can do to get back to God. All mankind has this emptiness, right? Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in our hearts. So there's this, this emptiness in us that can only be filled by the eternal. We don't know that, so we fill it with all kinds of other things. And, and today, oh, the world offers so many things to fill that void with. But we fill it with all kinds of things and nothing satisfies. Only God can satisfy that. So, um, I forgot how I even got there. Oh, Christianity, religion is spelled D-O, right? We know something's missing, missing in our life. 
and it is eternal. And, and so we do religious things. That's what religion is. It's what you do to get back to God. Christianity is spelled done, D-O-N-E. And it's based on what Jesus has done at the cross. Very simple, but very profound as well. To understand it's not about what we do to come to God. It's what about God has done to bring us back to himself. And it is through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what sets Christianity apart. If you have not trusted in God through his son, Jesus Christ, then you need to do that today. And if you haven't done that, I encourage you to come forward. I'd be just proud to share with you what the word says about coming to God through his son, Jesus. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.